Once upon a time, a man married a nurse. Early in their marriage, she made a fuss over every ache and pain. His littlest boo-boo demanded her attention. But he knew the honeymoon was over the day he climbed up to fix the attic fan. As he lifted himself up from the wooden ladder into the attic, he scratched his head on the crossbeam. Crawling over the rafters, he got some splinters stuck in his hands. As he was changing the fan belt, he cut his forearm. Big gash. And then on his way down the ladder, the last two rungs broke under his weight and it twisted his ankle. When the fellow finally limped into the kitchen, his wife took one look at him and shouted, Are those your good pants? Well, it was overwhelming evidence that the honeymoon was over and the marriage had begun. Every marriage reaches a point where the giddiness and the delight of the honeymoon fades and the realities of married life sets in. But even a seasoned marriage should retain traces of that honeymoon happiness. All marriages should be sprinkled with the joys and the thrills and the sparks and the romance and always a sense of partnership between a husband and a wife. What's sad is to witness a marriage that's lost all of that vim and vigor. A marriage that's become stale and gone flat. A marriage that's now more a burden than it is a blessing. If your marriage has lost its spark, its electricity, it's passion. I want to show you how to get it back. How you can re-strike the match. How you can relight the flame. For there's a story here in Judges chapter 13 that contains truths that if taken to heart and put into practice can revitalize a marriage. Judges 13 can turn a fizzler into a sizzler. It's the story of Manoah and his wife they were the faithful parents of God's strong man, Samson. Judges 13, beginning in verse 2. Now there was a certain man from Zorah of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Indeed now you are barren and have borne no children. But you shall conceive and bear a son. Now therefore, please be careful not to drink wine or similar drink, and not to eat anything unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. So the woman came. <coughs> And told her husband, saying, A man of God came to me, and his countenance was like the countenance of the angel of God. Very awesome. But I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. And he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. Now drink no wine or similar drink, nor eat anything unclean. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O oh my Lord, 
Please let the man of God whom you sent come to us again and teach us what we shall do for the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah. And the angel of God came to the woman again as she was sitting in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. Then the woman ran in haste and told her husband and said to him, Look, the man who came to me the other day has just now appeared to me. So Manoah arose and followed his wife. When he came to the man, he said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. Manoah said, Now let your words come to pass. What will be the boy's rule of life and his work? And so the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let let her be careful. She may not eat anything that comes from the vine, nor may she drink wine or similar drink, nor eat anything unclean. All that I commanded her, let her observe. Then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please let us detain you, and we will prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Though you detain me, I will not eat your food, but if you offer a burnt offering, you must offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know he was the angel of the Lord. Well, then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name? That when your words come to pass, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it upon the rock to the Lord. And he did a wondrous thing while Manoah and his wife looked on. It happened as the flame went up toward heaven from the altar. The angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. When Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell on their faces to the ground. When the angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife, then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. Now here's a story that progresses through six stages. Let me outline them for you. First, in verse 2, the story starts with desperation. This is a barren marriage. Second, in verse 3, suddenly there is a visitation. God decides to do something about the barrenness. Third, in verses 3 through 5, an angel shares a revelation, a message about what God wants to do in this marriage. Fourth, verses 6 through 14, they detail a struggle for unification. Mr. and Mrs. Manoah just can't seem to get it together. Then fifth, in verses 15 to 19, the Manoahs put on a show of dedication. They pledge themselves to God and they declare their newfound commitment with a sacrifice. And then sixth, in verse 20 and 21, God provides a sign of revitalization in this marriage. A miracle occurs. I hope you pay close attention this morning. For in this ancient story, God communicates amazingly relevant insights that might save a marriage or two here today. We start with desperation. This is a barren marriage. 
Verse 2 tells us that Manoah and his wife were childless. Now today, this is a difficult burden for couples to bear, but it was even worse for Mrs. Manoah. In ancient times, barrenness was viewed as a curse from God. A childless woman was scorned and ridiculed by her peers. She was treated cruelly. People didn't do a lot of caring for a woman who was barren. But there are other types of barrenness that, that exist other than just childlessness. I know couples today that suffer from an emotional barrenness. No expressions of affection. No demonstrations of love or exchange in their relationship. The wellspring has gone dry. Reminds me of the foolish fellow who never told his wife that he loved her. He explained to the marriage counselor, I said I loved her the day we were married and if anything changes in the future, I'll let her know. Not a good idea. Other couples, though, suffer from a relational barrenness. They're no longer friends. They're now strangers. They've stopped sharing life. They lack common goals and objectives. They've spun off into different orbits. A once happy couple devolves into two ships passing in the night. Still other marriages endure a spiritual barrenness. Nothing is being communicated on the deepest level. Oh sure, they discuss trivial matters, but they've stopped sharing their relationship with God. Their lives have become mechanical. It's all about the routine tasks. It reminds me of little Christy. She was playing in the floor with her dolls. At one point, she staged a wedding. She picked up her little teddy bear groom, and she said to the imaginary pastor, Okay, you can read us our rights. Suddenly, little Christy, she shifted roles from the bride to the pastor. She said in a deep voice, You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say may be held against you. You have the right to have an attorney present, and you may kiss the bride. Well, sadly, in a barren marriage, taking vows and reading rights sometimes gets confused. The silence can become deafening. What is said is used against the other person. The threat of an attorney is always on the horizon. And not a lot of kissing goes on. God created humans with a desire for intimacy. And a heartfelt closeness with another person. And he invented marriage as the venue where those needs can be met. God wants our marriages to be fruitful, not barren. Marriage was intended to be a hotbed for intimacy. He wants the flame lit and burning brightly. Which is why God pays Manoah and his wife a visit. We're told in verse 3, And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman. We start with desperation, but then suddenly there's a visitation. An angelic messenger appears with a promise for this woman. And he said to her, Indeed, now you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. He promises her offspring, fruitfulness. No longer will Mrs. Manoah be barren. I believe God desires for all marriages to experience a degree of spiritual and emotional and relational fruitfulness. 
For Manoah and his wife, this meant a son. For you and your spouse, it may mean a diffusion of the tension or a restored trust or a new sense of partnership or maybe the ability to just relax and laugh and have fun again or a willingness to forgive and start over or a harmony over a major decision or renewal of romantic feelings or the desire to talk and communicate or a rekindling of sexual expression and fulfillment. Rodney Dangerfield once said of his notoriously sorry marriage, he said, my wife and I, we eat apart, we take separate vacations, we never talk to each other or even see each other. We're doing everything we can to keep our marriage together. (laughs) Now that's a barren marriage. And yet it grieves me to see marriages where that is the couple's strategy. Rather than seek out an intimate relationship, the goal is to just sort of stay out of each other's way. No, God desires better for you and your spouse. He wants to visit your marriage and create a fruitfulness. If your marriage is in a state of desperation this morning, don't give up. In the darkest hours of World War II, Winston Churchill told the battle-wearied British people, he said, wars are not won by evacuation, and neither are good marriages. Suddenly, instantly, God here pays a visit to this marriage, and he creates fruitfulness where there was barrenness. And if he can do it in this marriage, he can do it in yours. But not only does God come through the angel, To pay this marriage a visitation, he also shares with the woman a revelation. God speaks a message about his plans for their home, a word about the promised child. He explains that the child they will sire will be a Hebrew Nazarite. You remember Samson? He lost his superhuman strength when Delilah gave him that unwanted haircut. Of course, there was nothing magical about his long locks. If so, your average rock musician would be a tough guy. No, the long hair was a sign of the Nazarite. This was a special order of Jews who took a special vow of dedication to God. Part of that vow (coughs) was to drink no wine. This is why the angel tells Mrs. Manoah to lay off the grape soda or she'll be defiled. She'll defile the child. Actually, in Numbers chapter 6, we learn that the vow of the Nazarite was threefold. There was no wine, no haircuts, and no touching anything that was dead. And this took the Nazarite out of normal circulation. It really separated him from the rest of the world. For here's what makes the world go round. Go to any strip mall today, and you know what you'll find? A liquor store, a hair salon... And there's a funeral parlor not too far away. All three of those things are common to our daily experience. You know, folks today, they love physical pleasure. They like to take a nip from time to time. People strive for outward beauty. They like cool clips. And people attend funerals. The reminders of our temporal importance. Life is short. You better get all you can while you can. After life, it's a rip. It's a rest in peace. This is what the world is all about today. Nips and clips and rips. How about that? 
Or here's another way to say it. The world is all about feeling great and looking great and thinking you're great. But God established the Nazarite to stand opposite those values. His life was to be a contradiction to the priorities of this world. He lived for spiritual fulfillment, not physical pleasure. He cultivated an inner beauty, not external looks. He was all about eternal life, not temporal importance. Real pleasure and real beauty and real life is found in God alone, not in the pursuits of this life. The revelation from God to Manoah's wife was that their offspring would be a holy child. A child set apart for God and for his purposes. Samson would be God's champion. He would fight God's battles. He would serve God's people. You can look at it this way. The cure for this couple's barrenness was holiness. Now let me say this again because this is a revolutionary concept. I don't want you to miss. The cure for this couple's barrenness was holiness. Now, this is not what you've heard. We've been told that the way to get a spark back in our marriage, the way to add a little spice after the rice, is to turn to worldly ways and fleshly techniques. Oh, feeling great, that's what's going to rescue your marriage. A candlelight dinner, a bottle of wine, a weekend away at the posh hotel a Caribbean cruise, a gift certificate to Victoria's Secrets. Physical pleasure is what's going to rekindle your marriage. Or perhaps looking great, that'll restore passion to your marriage and recapture your spouse's attention. A new haircut, a nice makeover. If I slim down or shaped up, or perhaps a new wardrobe will do the trick. We look to externals to enhance our marriage. And some folks assume that being great will cure their marriage. Oh, once he succeeds in his career and gets a big salary, once we buy that dream house, then we'll be happy. Temporary success will improve our marriage. We've been told that physical pleasure and external beauty and temporal success are the ways to improve a marriage, but we've been sold a false bill of goods. The ultimate cure for a barren marriage is not more worldliness, but holiness. To light a fire in your marriage that will burn long after the honeymoon is over, you need to dedicate your life and your marriage to God. The tension in your marriage will lessen only when you begin to receive God's blessing. you got to give Him your heart. What happens when you get tired or sick? And you don't feel great anymore. I remember those vows said, for better or worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health. Fulfillment in marriage comes when a husband and a wife have forged a spiritual bond, when they've connected soul to soul despite how they might feel physically. What happens in a marriage when you no longer look great, when those crow's feet land on your forehead? When wrinkles take the place of curves, when tight skin and firm muscles turn into bags and sags, well, hopefully, when that day comes, 
you realize that the most powerful attractiveness is internal, not external. Happily married couples, they get excited about each other because of who they are, not what they look like. And what happens if you never become great? Or worse, that you become great and realize there was nothing to it anyway. What really glues my life to my wife is the joy of knowing that we serve the Lord together. That we have a common calling, a mutual mission. That our lives and our marriage are counting for all eternity. Here's a profound revelation. The cure to barrenness in a marriage is holiness unto God. The closer two spouses grow to God, the closer they'll grow together. Years ago, someone showed me an illustration that I use whenever I counsel a married couple today. Take a triangle, put a husband and wife at the two bottom corners of the triangle and place God up at the top. Now slide the husband and the wife up the sides of the triangle. As they get closer to God, look what happens. They get closer to each other. As they get further from God, look what happens. They get further from each other. A marriage relationship is really all about both persons' relationship with God. And maybe you've tried the Caribbean cruise and the posh hotels. Maybe you now live in that big house on the hill, but you're still lonely and your marriage still languishes. Stop with the worldliness and give holiness a try. If you want a sparkling, thrilling electric, sexy, stimulating marriage. Put God at the center. Pray together. Study your Bible together. Find a way to serve the Lord together. Work on the spiritual side of your life and watch it resuscitate the intimacy in your marriage. Well, Mrs. Manoa, she received a visitation and a revelation, but soon she found herself struggling for unification. The angel appeared to her, but not to her husband. Why God chose to visit her first, we're not sure. Maybe she was more spiritually sensitive than he was. Maybe he needed to be humbled. We don't really know. But what we do know is that after the visitation, this couple struggled to get it together. Understand, when God first visits your marriage, don't expect instant harmony. His visitation will rekindle a new love and fresh feelings and clearer priorities, but it doesn't instantly resolve all of your difficulties. Even in a good marriage, unification is still a struggle. Recently, I read some startling statistics. Did you know 54% of American women don't know that a touchdown count six points? 70% don't know that a safety counts two points. That shows just how far apart men and women really are. When I hear that a couple is getting divorced on the grounds of incompatibility, I just laugh. The mere fact that one's a man and one's a woman means they're incompatible. Every couple is going to struggle a bit and work at unity and good communication in their marriage. It's hard work. Recently, researchers discovered 1,300 previously unpublished letters that were sent 
from former President Harry Truman to his beloved wife, Bess. Every day Truman was away from his wife, he penned her a letter. You'd think the most powerful man in the world would have more important duties to do than to write his wife a note. But Harry Truman realized the value of working at communication in his marriage. Did you hear about the California surfer? He found a bottle on the beach. He rubbed it and out popped a genie. The genie promised to grant him one wish. He looked out across the ocean, way off in the distance, and he said, I've always thought it'd be nice to have a freeway stretch over the water from Long Beach all the way to Hawaii. I think it'd be great. The genie balked. He, he said, do you realize the thousands of pillars that would have to be sunk and the lives that would be lost sinking those pillars? I won't do it. You need to make another request. Well, the surfer thought again, and he, and he said, well, I've always wanted to understand women. Maybe you could teach me everything there is to know about the opposite sex. The genie thought for a minute and he said, four lane or six lane? <laughs> hey, hey, realize men and women think differently. And this makes unity something that we have to work at. In verse 8, Manoah acts like a typical husband. His wife has just received a visitation and a revelation from God. But rather than listen to her and study what God said to her, he asked God to appear to him. In other words, <coughs> he refuses to take the woman's word for it. He wants to see and hear these spiritual revelations for himself. And so he prays in verse 8, Oh my Lord, Please let the man of God whom you sent come to us again and teach us what we shall do for the child who will be born. God had just given those same instructions to his wife. But he was too proud to listen to Mrs. Manoah. And I love what happens in verse 9. And God listened to the voice of Manoah. God heard this man's prayer, but he read his attitude. And the angel of God came to the woman again as she was sitting in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. God does it to him again. He appears to his wife rather than Manoah. Verse 10 tells us what happens next. His wife rushes to get Manoah. And a humbling statement is made in verse 11. So Manoah arose and followed his wife. You know, there are other Bible passages that teach that the wife should follow her husband. But here, a husband follows his wife, and for good reason. Hey, I'll just go ahead and say it. But 99% of the time, it's true. The greatest hindrance and hurdle to unification in a marriage is male pride. It is. Get over it, guys. Remember James chapter 4, verse 6? God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. It's true. Eventually, Manoah will take leadership in this marriage. But first, God has to humble him and prove that he can speak to his wife as well as he can to Manoah. You know, when God visits a marriage, oftentimes one member of the partnership gets a little ahead of the other. Perhaps the work begins in the husband's heart. And he sweeps up his wife in his enthusiasm. Or maybe God does a work in the wife's heart. And the husband comes along out of curiosity. The partner with the head start has to learn that they're not greater than the one lagging behind. 
And the partner who's lagging behind has to believe that God will enable them to catch up. In other words, the key to unity is humility. Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 33 is a controversial passage. It outlines the marital roles for male and female. Men should lovingly lead and women should willingly follow. But the very first word that's mentioned to husbands and wives is a general rule that applies to us all. Verse 21 says, submitting to one another in the fear of God. There should be a mutual submission first in a marriage. Both partners need to humble themselves and acknowledge God's authority over their lives and their relationship. A good marriage starts by bowing your knee to God before taking each other's hand. Yes, there's a struggle for unification, but it culminates with a show of dedication. Manoah and his wife, they offer a sacrifice of commitment to God. And here's where a desperate marriage turns the corner when it's presented as a sacrifice to God. And don't misunderstand. I take very seriously the vow that I made to my wife. And she places great importance on the vow that she made to me. But what keeps us pressing on, (coughs) working in our marriage, in both the good times and in the bad times, is the realization that we not only made a vow to each other, but we also made a promise to God. We vowed to God that we'd be faithful to each other and to Him. You see, there's a higher authority at work in our marriage that holds both my wife and I accountable for how we treat one another. You know, I'm sure if my wife's commitment to me was all that was at stake, there would have been times in the past when she would have tossed in the towel Over the years, I've done some boneheaded stuff that has hurt her deeply. There have been times when I didn't deserve her love, but she's remained loyal to me because she made a vow, not just to me, but to God. Our marriage is more than an earthly partnership between two people. It's a divine union made up of three people, Kathy and me and our Lord Jesus. Today, it's popular to draw up a prenuptial agreement prior to marriage. I read of one such prenup that contains 16 pages of specifications. Outlined in the agreement were details concerning how often the couple would have sex, what time they'd go to bed, what brand of gasoline they'd use in their cars. I don't know why that mattered. How they handled the laundry and other chores. The bride-to-be made this statement. This is the plan we think will keep us married for 50 or 60 years. I'm sorry, but that kind of a commitment won't keep you married for 50 to 60 days. You need a godly reason to stay married. For marriage to work, it has to be grounded in a commitment to an authority greater than either party. I've taken a vow to God and I'm responsible to the Almighty for what kind of husband I am regardless of what Kathy does or doesn't do. And she too has taken a vow to God and she shares the same responsibility. When Mr. and Mrs. Manoah offered their sacrifice of dedication, God provided them a sign of revitalization. Look at the amazing finale to this story. Verse 19 tells us, 
So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it upon the rock to the Lord. And the angel did a wondrous thing while Manoah and his wife looked on. It happened as the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. You know, the prophet Elijah, he ascended into heaven in a chariot of fire. This angel doesn't even wait for the chariot. I mean, he jumps into the flame that's lapping up the sacrifice and he surfs it all the way to the heavenly shore. Must have been an amazing sight to behold. You know, Bible scholars point out that often in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord is none other than a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. It's possible that's the case here. In fact, the angel calls himself Wonderful. That's the name Isaiah gave to Jesus, Wonderful Counselor. If the angel that appeared to Manoah was actually Jesus, it makes for beautiful imagery. When he and his wife stoke the fire, when they offer up their burnt offering, their sacrifice, guess what Jesus does? He jumps into the midst of their fire. And this is how you rekindle your marriage. This is how you rekindle fire in your marriage. You rededicate yourself and your marriage to God, and then you watch Jesus jump into your flame. And when the Lord jumps in, it's like pouring gas on the fire. Jesus acts like STP gas treatment. Or maybe like some of that nitrous oxide. He aids the combustion. When Jesus joins a couple's flame, their marriage fire burns cleaner and hotter and longer. Reminds me of a wedding at the First Presbyterian Church of Spokane, Washington. Just as Craig Looper planted a kiss on the lips of his bride, the fire alarm sounded. A fire elsewhere in the building triggered the alarm. Afterward, one of his friends joked, wow, that was one hot kiss. Well, when Jesus joins the flame of your marriage, you can expect lots and lots of hot kisses. Notice in verse 20, finally, Mr. and Mrs. Manoah are in harmony. But notice how this harmony occurs, how this unity occurs. When Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell on their faces to the ground. Notice they're united, but only on their faces before the Lord. This excites me so much. To hear some marriage experts talk, there's no hope for my my marriage. Reconciliation and rekindling are too complicated. They're too complex for us. There are weeks when our responsibilities keep Kathy and I from having a date night with each other. With a kid in college, romantic getaways can be lean. I mean, we might as well face it. We don't always feel great. I stopped looking great a long time ago. And none of us will ever be considered great. But I can do the most important thing to keep my marriage fires burning. I can humble myself. And I can get on my knees with my wife. And together we can dedicate our lives and our marriage to the purposes of God. We can seek and share and serve the Lord together. Maybe your marriage is filled with desperation, but this morning God is at work. A visitation has occurred. 
He's provided you a revelation of His will. Remember, the cure for barrenness is not worldliness. It's holiness. Seek God together. And even if you might struggle a bit for unification, it doesn't have to stop you from dedication. You don't always have to see eye to eye to bow knee to knee. Humble your heart. Offer up your marriage as a wonderful sacrifice to God. And as you do, His Spirit will join your flame. God will bring about a revitalization to your marriage. Today, Jesus wants to join your flame and turn your barren marriage into a fun and fruitful marriage again.